At PyCon 2017, Jake Vanderplas gave a great keynote where he said Python is a mosaic. He described how Python is stronger and growing because it's being adopted and used by people with diverse technical backgrounds. In this episode, we're adding to that mosaic by diving into how Python is being used in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. Our guest, Gui Talrico, has worked as an architect who helped automate that world by bringing Python to solve problems where others were just using point-and-click tooling. I think you'll enjoy this look into that world. We also touch on his project, Pi Airtable, near the end as well. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 342, recorded November 7th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Shortcut and Linode. And the transcripts are sponsored by Assembly AI. Guy, welcome to Talk Python. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you here. I'm really excited to talk about buildings and architecture and that kind of stuff just permeates our lives, right? That's you walk around, you go to the cities, you marvel at the large buildings, go to someone's house and it's this beautiful place. Really nice to see all that starts with good architecture and design, right? Yeah, that's right. Where we live, where we work, pretty much uh, most of our lives we spend inside uh, some sort of structure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, we're going to talk about that. Before we get into that, though, let's just start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python? Yeah, it was a bit of a long journey to Python. I think my first experience with programming was actually with Lego Mindstorm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Little, yeah. Little robot thing, right? You can, yeah. you can program those with Python, can't you? Yeah. I don't know what it looks like these days. I guess when I got it, I was maybe, yeah, in my early teenage years or something. And at the time, they had something that was similar to MIT's Scratch kind of block, mm -hmm. plug and yeah. play. So I did a little bit of that. And then earlier, uh, later, I tried to learn Visual Basic 6, I think also in my you know, early teenage years. Mm -hmm. And that was fun. I built a couple little personal projects. I feel like we still don't have something to take the place of Visual Basic 6. Yeah, yeah. Do you think so? I mean, I... I look around at all the different UI platforms, whether that's the stuff we have in Python or whether that's Swift or whether that's, you know, .NET with WPF or whatever else you want to talk about. Nothing is as easy as I want these buttons here in a text box and a list and I double click it and I write three lines of code and that happens, right? Yeah, the, the environment has changed, right? Because before they were just desktop apps, right? You would build it and, and that's it. And now you have to think about even if React has made it as easy to build front-end app, you still have to deal with something else for styling, and then you have to figure out how you're going to serve the data or you're going to deploy it to you. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying VV6 is the pinnacle of <laughs> yeah. what we could design, right? It's, it's not going to win massive design awards, but yeah. wow, could people get stuff done quickly with that framework? Yeah. So you, start, you did a little bit there, huh? Yeah, I never got too deep, but it was an extension of a robotics course that I was taking. So we were building these little UIs and then clicking mm. around and having the robot move or something. So it was a very basic UI. But what was interesting is 
at the time, I, I grew up in Brazil and at the time I was still there and I wanted to get really deep, but there was this, there was a bit of a language barrier, I think. This was also, you know, pre-Google. So trying to learn how to program while also not knowing how to speak English, I actually feel like it slowed me down a bit. Yeah, I can imagine. I've always had a lot of both respect and I guess a little bit of sympathy for people who are non-native English speakers, especially people who didn't particularly speak English super well, but then had to program with for loops and while yeah, loops and yeah. true and false and ints. And it's just like, if, you know, maybe if you're with a language that's not that different, it's not that hard, but you know, if you're like Chinese or even Portuguese, it's, you know, why do you have to program in all these foreign yeah. words? It, it just seems crazy to me that that's how it has been, right? Yeah. And also the, the resources, even today with yeah. post Google era or during the Google era, you can... If you search for a, some sort of engineer problem in English or in Portuguese, I can guarantee you're going to get a much bigger pool of answers and resources in English. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a little bit of a barrier. In fact, what actually happened is I never really progressed and I just went on to other things. All right, maybe this programming thing is not for me, huh? That yeah, was, like, I, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I just kind of didn't really get it, never really clicked. And then I yeah, mm -hmm. moved on to other things and ended up pursuing a degree in architecture talk a little bit about it, but it was a little bit of kind of a gap. And then I think it was just during my, my college years, I tried getting into a little bit of web development, played around with ActionScript, Flash, or I think that's what it's called, right? It was like JavaScript, like inside yeah. of Flash. And then within architecture, I got a little bit into like visual programming, which it's, I guess, a more sophisticated version of, you know, Scratch, but similar to what 3DS Max uses to compose material, you know, this idea that you can kind of connect flows into each other visually and that's used pretty extensively in architecture still and that was kind of like my, my, my gateway back into programming in some ways and then a couple of years later i actually practiced architecture for i think about five or six years and at the time i was trying to figure out how i could change careers and i, I was just i had this kind of itch i just really wanted to write code and i couldn't yeah. figure out how to kind of break it and I ended up doing this process of changing careers. I actually took a year off and spent every kind of brief minute I had trying to learn how to code. Was that on your own or did you go to a university? Yeah, or it was just on my own. Yeah. yeah. Literally like Googled, what language should I learn first? And this was like 2014, I think, or 15. Mm -hmm. And I actually picked Ruby first. This was Ruby on Rails, yeah. golden years, I guess. And I started with Ruby and after a couple of weeks, I just didn't enjoy it that much. I, I was getting confused with some of the basic kind of building blocks and I decided to try Python and it was just kind of smooth sailing. I mean, I guess yeah. as smooth as it can be learning by yourself. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, you know, I felt like even the basic grammar, it would just kind of stick. I didn't have to keep going back and say, oh, how is it? How do you do a for loop again? I found it was always a bit stickier with me, not having to think about where some semicolons would go, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it was just easier and smoother and more enjoyable for me in general. For sure. Well, I gave uh, VB a lot of um, positive praise a little bit ago. I think also that language is a really interesting example of how to try to be like Python, but not do it well. So with JavaScript or C Sharp or a lot of these languages, you have all these symbols on the screen, especially the static yeah. languages, C Sharp, Java, C++, right? Semicolons, angle brackets, you know, parentheses, all sorts of stuff all over the place. And then there's languages like Python that say, you know, you don't need that. You don't need all these symbols. Let's yeah. just go and yeah. write it. 
And, you know, VB is like that, right? There's no semicolons. There's not that many symbols, but so, it's like everything is begin for, end for. Like, it's just, it's the worst possible. It's like they still yeah. need the closing curly braces and stuff like that, but they don't want to put a curly brace. So they make you type like a huge long word, which is, is crazy. And, and somehow Python struck that like smooth balance of not having all that stuff, but not giving up too much as well. Yeah. And also the, the boilerplate that's required. I think I had tried doing some C-sharp as well. And when you open up the simplest example you can find and it's class, <laughs> void, public, and you're like, wait, what is public? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. haven't gone to understand classes or you know, access and things yeah, like that. And, and it's really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And in Python, it's like, even the class takes a little bit when you're learning, but you can just, here's a function that's inside of this object. And it's much easier yeah. to understand, I think, as a beginner to kind of ramp up. I think it's... A big testament that you can be really effective with Python with a, a super, like, like a very partial understanding of what Python is or how it works, right? You right. can not even be aware that half of the stuff exists and you can still get along just fine. So that's pretty awesome. So let's dive into the main topic, buildings, architecture. So I've seen some of the presentations you've given and it sounds to me like this is a industry that's ripe for more programming, automation, empowerment. You know, I always say that programming is a superpower for people who ha are not programmers, right? If you're an architect versus an architect who programs, the programming architect can do way more, right? And it, it sounds to me like uh, this area is kind of open for more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Give us the background. So it starts with pictures and drawings and blueprints type things, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I guess I should just preface this with the fact that I've been outside the industry for about you know, four years now, just doing more traditional software development. So I may be a little bit of the loop on some changes, but you know, in general, the time I spent in the industry, what you would see is that it's still a pretty kind of analog industry and, and there are parts that are improving, there are parts that are very advanced. I mean, we do still manage to build incredible buildings, but there's this weird kind of tension where people are coming up with these design concepts and figuring out what the building is going to look like, what spaces you're going to need. And then kind of at the other end, you have like people like standing on their, like literally cutting material and assembling things. Yeah. And then there's this big kind of gap in the middle of how you go from one thing to another. And that's kind of the, the meat of architecture. So my experience was primarily medium and, and large buildings. And it's actually just very labor intensive labor as far as software, not the hands-on labor for architects, yeah. but there's just a lot of work that goes into designing the big building. So if you have a, I don't know, one of the office buildings I worked on 150,000 square feet, six story or something, and someone had come up with a design, okay, it's going to look like this. And it was very conceptual design, kind yeah. of massive. And then you have to turn into this, into a real project with faucets that work and lights <laughs> and sprinklers. Exactly. When you think, well, let me rephrase that. When I think of architecture, I think of the overall feel of it, right? right? Is it flowing? Does it have sharp edges? Does it feel modern, yeah. right? And so on. I have a picture here on the screen for us to look at. That's this, you know, sort of wood structure. It's light and airy. And sure, that's architecture, but it sounds like, and so are the support beams. So is the plumbing. So is the light switch and where they go. And just way more detail than just the general skeleton or structure out yeah, there. Yeah. And like which which part of the plywood is gonna go in which direction, like on your 
kitchen counter or something in the, like <laughs> right. that level of detail. But what you're what you're showing here, it's kind of what you see in school and what you get really excited about in school. And then when you start working, you realize that there's only a few <laughs> people that get to do this type of work, and the majority of the people are just yeah. kind of doing coordination and working on lots of drawings and, and coordination between different trades. But you know, of course, that does happen. But big chunk of the work is just figuring out how to coordinate and, and assemble drawings. So if you imagine, a lot of this work is done on kind of traditional desktop applications. So if you're familiar with Autodesk, the biggest ones in the US are AutoCAD, Revit. Those are more, Revit is very like architecture, kind of building focused. AutoCAD is mm -hmm. more kind of generic, uh, you know, uh, drawing and drafting. And then you have other players like MacNeil, they do kind of 3D modeling. And it's used all the way from small jewelry design and boats all the way to buildings, but more at the conceptual stage. And Revit is kind of the big dog as far as like building documentation. And there's this interesting process because at the same time you are coming up with the building at the large scale, right? Like what you see there, that's kind of massing. You have to zoom in all the way to what is it going to look like, the light cove in the bathroom, for example. And you mm -hmm. might have to cut a section through that in detail. And there's this weird process we are still in where buildings are designed half in 3D and half in 2D. So you do some 3D and then you get sort of these views, but then you might zoom in and actually... Then you do a projection. You're like, oh, we need to see just this wall. Yeah, yes. And, so, or just so like the, floor, the person who's going to look. assemble the skis work needs a drawing of like, what does it look like if I cut through here? And you literally draw in 2D and you have to assemble these big drawing sets that are references that show the 3D and say, okay, if you were to cut through this, here's what you would see. and Oftentimes, they're not even like the same model. You're just trying to yeah. make this thing look coordinated. How often does it go wrong? Oh, pretty often. Yeah, yeah, pretty often. So one of the things that's done, usually there's a tool called Navisworks is one of the ones that's used that's for clash detection. So because not only you have the architects, but you also have these trades coming together, right? So you have separate models for the architecture, like walls and floors and, and things like that. And then you have the structural engineer as a separate model with all the steel or concrete structure and maybe the MEP, uh, mechanical electrical employment folks have a separate model and then they all get linked. And in the end, you may have like a duck going through a light fixture or <laughs> yeah. things kind of through wall and you actually have to do clash detections and trying to figure out places where the model may not have a kind of a valid condition. Yeah, I can imagine. So this Revit app is largely a .NET C-sharp desktop application. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And yeah, so true. if you want to program it or work with it, what do you do? You do that in C Sharp? Yeah. So the Revit's been around for a while and I'm not sure when it started. I don't think it was from the very beginning, but at some point they released, they released an API and without this API, you, you, you can do everything through the UI, right? So you can click around and you can basically achieve everything you need to. And through the API, you can sort of automate everything that's visible and sometimes a little bit more. But the idea is that, for example, one of the first, one of the first tasks I automated in Revit was I was working in really large office buildings and each room would get tagged with like the name of the room. And I would right. have to literally drag this tag on. And then sometimes as the building moved, things would get kind of out of place and you wanted the tags to be kind of centered nicely. And you would literally have to go around and move around these tags. <laughs> and one of the first- For hundreds of rooms, right? That sounds yeah. like not, not a fun, good use of your time. Oh no, definitely not at all. 
And yeah, one of the first automations I built was this tool that would just go automatically room by room and make sure the tag was in the center. So we just kind of figured out the delta between the center of the room and where the tag was and like slide it. And I I actually had at the company that I worked at the time, I had a system that would measure the use of tools and that tool would just get used like hundreds of times a day. So imagine every time someone clicked that button, the amount of time you would see these architects like going around and moving these tags to get them centered. And just, just little things like that. Very kind of monotonous, boring, not very impressive automations. Yeah, but those but are the kinds of things of that you time can, the day to day. Yeah, but you can easily apply code to those and really make people's lives better. And it sounds like hundreds of people's lives better by, you know, ma- not making them fiddle with stupid labels all the time. Oh, yeah. Push a button, right? So while it, these can be programmed in C-sharp, there's a Python angle, right? Yeah. There's a couple different ways that Python comes in. I think Revit itself does support some sort of Python automation, but it's, again, it's a bit bulky, difficult to use, difficult to debug. So one of the main ways that it's used these days, there's this project, and I've actually become um, really good friends with the maintainer, but there's this project called PyRevit. And the idea is that when you write Python, you, you get used to things being sort of Pythonic or more elegant, and it's easy to, to do, right? So what he was trying to do is how can we have this kind of experience building automations within Revit? So instead of having to compile my C-sharp add-in, how can I kind of just pop up the script, click a button and have it run my Python code? And that's essentially, you know, what he built. So initially it was using only Iron Python because that's the way it integrates within the Revit environment since it's .NET. You would essentially, using Iron Python, you could interact directly with Revit through the common language runtime. Right. So tell us a bit about Iron Python. I suspect many people do know about it. This came originally out of a project at Microsoft. I think, was this Dino Veland? I can't remember. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I, I've interacted I so. with the maintainers a couple times over the last few years. And the impression I've had is that there was one or two people kind of trying to get this going. But it's not very active. And I think the three release wasn't a two way. So it shows there it's still in alpha, actually. At the time <laughs> when I was using it, it was still in 2.7. It's been stuck yeah. there for a long time. At least it's making progress. I mean, here's a release in 2021 on it. So that's good. Yeah. One of the things, I'm not too familiar with it, but I remember hearing from the PyRevit uh, maintainer that they actually ended up using this other project called Python.net. And yes. Iron Python is essentially a Python interpreter that, that's written in C Sharp. And Python.net does something kind of different. It actually allows you to use CPython, but interact with the .NET side. And I don't quite remember how it worked, but I know he got it to work and he was able yeah. to get CPython applications running inside of Revit as well. Right. So Iron Python is a Python interpreter, but instead of having the interpreter implemented in C, the way that it the one that we're all mostly familiar with is yeah. it's implemented on top of .NET. And yeah, that was Dino Vlanda double check. So uh, nice job on that, Dino. And it's implemented on top of the .NET CLR runtime. And it's kind of its own little thing in this thing called the dynamic language runtime, which means integration with .NET is super easy because it's already running in .NET. It's equivalent to saying integration with C is easy on C Python because it's already effectively running in C, right? And I guess that's probably a pretty natural way to go because if you're trying to integrate with a C-sharp.net library, you got to somehow get that thing in and do something with it, right? So I could see why they would go with Iron Python first. But yeah, Python, I've, I've sort of heard that Python.net is, it seems a little bit 
more C Python friendly, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the issues with Iron Python project is that it's kind of impossible to maintain. Like, how do you keep up with <laughs> yeah. all the changes and releases of C Python and like rebuild them from scratch in Iron in, in uh, C Sharp? I would imagine it's, it would take a huge amount of time and resources to keep that project like going in the same yeah. pace. Yeah. So here, looking at Python.net, we've got it supports two seven, but also three five, three six, three seven, and three eight, which is not three nine and three ten. Yeah. But it sure is better than alpha support for three four. Yeah. Are you? Do you know how it actually like what it actually does? How does it get to? I have no. I have not learned enough about Python.net to know how it works. But it's yeah. It, it looks. Pretty neat though, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think it's just a, it's, you're, you're able to operate in C Python, but kind of import common legged runtime and talk to your .NET DLLs in the same way you would from Iron Python. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. You get very foreign looking code. Import CLR from system.windows.forms import form, which is something you would expect to see in a .NET project, not in a Python project. Yeah. But that, there's actually, that's one interesting thing that I've seen happen quite a bit because people within you know, the, this industry ended up using Iron Python quite a bit. I know there's a few projects out there for building UIs in Python, but mm -hmm. you, I've actually seen quite a few projects with like desktop UIs basically built using, you know, .NET because it has... Oh, interesting. What is it? WinForms? I forgot what the yeah, other yeah, yeah. one was. WinForms is the one that's like the modern-ish VB. I say modern-ish yeah. because I think they kind of stopped advancing that in something like... 2008, I think is when they stopped advancing it. So it's not like super modern, but it's way more modern than VB6 was. So yeah, there's that and there's WPF and then some Oh, the, yeah, WPF was the, is the more current one, right? Yeah, also way harder to use. But yeah, more, more modern one, yeah. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse.io. Happy with your project management tool? Most tools are either too simple for a growing engineering team to manage everything or way too complex for anyone to want to use them without constant prodding. Shortcut is different though, because it's worse. No, wait, no, I mean it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams. It's fast, intuitive, flexible, powerful, and many other nice positive adjectives. Key features include team-based workflows. Individual teams can use default workflows or customize them to match the way they work org-wide goals and roadmaps. The work in these workflows is automatically tied into larger company goals. It takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work to individual updates and back. Type version control integration. Whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Clubhouse ties directly into them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface. The rest of Shortcut is just as friendly as their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Throw that thing in the trash. Iteration planning. Set weekly priorities and let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burndown charts and other reporting. Give it a try over at talkpython.fm slash shortcut. Again, that's talkpython.fm slash shortcut. Choose Shortcut because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. So what you're saying is you've seen some people write Python code that then will do stuff like this to put that kind of UI right. on the screen, right? Okay. Yeah, and even PyRev itself had quite a few kind of UI components and they were all just using standard .NET stuff, but right in, in Python. And yeah. what's interesting too is in addition to PyRev, there's a few other projects and one of them I had worked on that's called, it was called Revit Python Wrapper. And there's another one called Revitron. 
which all have kind of similar idea, which is like, I want to have the Python experience, but, you know, using this other kind of stack. So the idea for Revit Python wrapper is that the Revit API, it's this very bulky C-sharp API. Yeah. It's enormous. There's You can make it do its thing in Python, but you you work with the the type names and the function names yeah. and stuff straight out of the, the .NET world, right? Which is clearly not Pythonic. They're, they're very different the way of doing things. Yeah. So your code doesn't look or feel like Python. And then the interfaces and kind of the APIs for the libraries are weird. So like if I want to just query, you know, this model for a wall, I would have to like build this object and this kind of like builder pattern. And, oh okay. you know, it's, it's very strange. Like it doesn't feel like Python. So when I started writing that, I would all build these little functions that would take the C-sharp code and give me like a Python-like call yeah. that I could make. And yeah. that's what this project came out from was this idea that I wanted to oh, wrap everything that didn't feel Pythonic to make it like feel like I was using So you wrote your own, like your PyRevit wrapper a little bit that would then make it easier, right? And make it look, feel more natural. And then eventually you just decided. Yeah. So at the time I was writing, I was writing Python code and the PyRevit was sort of, it was kind of the environment. So the idea for PyRevit is you would, you could literally just save this .py file in a folder and put a PNG mm -hmm. icon and it would sort of load it up that file and add it to the Revit ribbon. So someone could click on it. And when he clicked, it would load your source code and feed it into the I'm Python engine. So right. it would just help you kind of establish this, this environment and you didn't have to compile an add-in, restart Revit. And then Revit Python wrapper was that every script that I had, I would just import Revit Python wrapper and then just say collector type equals wall and it would query for every wall in the model. And I stopped working on this project for a while. Then I recently ran into this Revitron, which is a much more kind of sophisticated version, but essentially the same idea. People wanted to write a uh, very clean Python, but operate kind of on top of the Revit API without having to deal with the non kind of Python look and feel. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And even has its own CLI. Oh, very yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's very nice. Yeah, I guess it, it integrates with the PyRevit CLI, right? Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about this high Revit, which if I go further enough back, I'll find it, is that you can use Python to build these little toolbar buttons or widgets, right? Yeah. And the way you do it is, uh, as you would sort of described, there's this super convention of all these directory, this directory structure, right? Like if, if you put this file there and then the Python file in like some location, it can, it'll trigger the discovery that'll then create like a, some kind of icon and action right. in there, right? Maybe tell us about that a bit. Yeah, and under the hood, if you were to write this in C-sharp, there would be a whole bunch of boilerplate that you would have to add for how those buttons get instantiated and loaded into the UI. And one thing that I've sort of witnessed, like seen PyRevit project grow, I was one of the kind of early users, adopters, and it was this huge barrier for people who wanted to automate Revit because you had to learn C-sharp and the add-ins were difficult to build. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just this big kind of high. I had to learn interfaces and how to implement them and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right? like you had to, we had to go around like the little, you know, the compile settings and think around with it to get it to work. And you had to compile for different versions of Revit. And it was really difficult, at least for me, maybe it's easier for some people. But <laughs> with PyRevit, you could literally just duplicate this folder and I open a new Python file, start messing with it. And every time you click, it would rerun. You would even have to reload anything because you would just read the source code and feed it to the Python interpreter. So for the first time, I felt like I had this ability to 
kind of iterate quickly and explore and test things out. Yeah. So it was a totally different experience. Yeah, that's great. I'm looking at the code sample here for PyRivet, the create your first command example. And I see exactly what you're talking about with this sort of C-sharp abstractions leaking into the Python world. Yeah, right? there's definitely a little bit in there. Yeah, because it says, oh, look how easy it is to build this. You just drop this in this here and you put your your Python file in the folder that is like your button where it contains your icons. And, and then you write capital DB, capital, you know, capital F filtered, capital E element, capital collector. So filtered element collector of da 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 and write. And it's real similar to what you would expect from that language. That language is idioms and yeah, not Python's the, idioms. In the right? Revit Python wrapper, I started wrapping these classes. So for example, the filtered element collector, I mean, that's a pretty mm -hmm. long that I wouldn't give it to a Python class usually. So I just called yeah. it the collector. And okay. I created a class that wrapped the filtered element collector. So instead of writing something like this, you would say collector type equals wall. And you could write, you know, wall as a as an enum and you would sort of basically output this code that you're seeing there. But the problem is you can't really avoid it because even though you wrapped collector, there are like eight thousand other like C sharp classes that I'm not going to wrap them individually. Yeah. So like eventually it just kind of leaks. You just can't. I can't do the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, somewhere there's some function you can't get in front of and it returns one of these things and then, then there it is, right? Exactly. I tried at some point, I had these wrappers that would take the return and wrap those into some sort of generic wrapper and you would get so complicated and people that they couldn't figure out what it was doing. So that's why that Revit Python project ended up just kind of being abandoned at some point and I, you know, I wasn't as involved with it anymore. So I just kind of mm -hmm. sat there, but that was the idea. If you look at an example for that one, you see that it looks a lot more, a lot more Python-like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm clearly seeing stuff that looks more like Python in here. It's <laughs> fantastic, right? Like, you know, uh, variable names. Another thing that you spoke about that I don't even know what you were doing to solve this, but you said that you had to somehow adapt to things like out parameters and ref parameters, which is a certain way to have a, instead of doing pass by value, you, so you can actually modify the reference itself in the parameter. It's a little bit like a passing a pointer to a pointer in C yeah. or something like that, where you can change the pointer itself inside the function. What did they do in Python to deal with that? That seems, I don't know how to do that in Python. Iron Python has a special, I don't remember because it's been a while, but Iron Python has a special construct. Oh, okay. So in Iron Python, there's like an out or something. Okay. Yeah. So you import some special Iron Python object and, and that becomes your reference and you pass that. So, you know, Iron Python is this, is this weird kind of, ways of handling those differences. What's difficult is that it's a very niche thing. So when you run into a problem with, with those, there's not a whole lot of people like trying to solve this. So it was always a little bit difficult too. I've had that sort of scenario before and it's, it's not very often fun. And I remember specifically one time there was something I was trying to do with this code and it just was not responding in any way that I expected. And I was I was at my wits end. I'm like, I'm just going to Google this. I'm just going to just find whatever I can. And the only answer I could find was a blog post I wrote about it six months ago. I'm like, well, that's it. We're done. There's, there's no hope for me now. Because I'm sure I've tried. I can't do it. And I, the only thing I can find is some dumb blog post that didn't really answer the question I wrote about it. So here we go. The, on Iron Python, a couple of times I had issues. My only resource was to go into the GitHub project and actually post an issue. And I said, there's a Stack Overflow question. 
no responses. I'm completely <laughs> at lost here. Yeah. Well, that's such one of the such a big challenge of using one of these sort of niche interpreters or runtimes because when you need help, there's no one to help you. And if it comes down to some little weird internal behavior, right, that behavior might be different. And just because people, they'll tell you, well, that's how it works in CPython. You're like, well, I know, but that's not how it works for me right now. Right. Can you help me? Like, no, I don't know anything about that, right? It's it's a challenge. Yeah. And, and if you're trying to post a reproducible example in Stack Overflow and you have to have Revit open, for example, to execute this, if you're trying to deal with some like nuance of Iron Python within this environment, it's really difficult. Yeah, oh my gosh. I can see why you would want to get away from it. And I'm guessing that python.net makes this easier. Maybe it's still the same. I'm not entirely sure. I, I would like to learn more about that one, but. Yeah, same here. Yeah, let's see. I'll, on the live stream, I just want to say, hey, Bhavani, that um, finally could catch up on the live stream here. Big fan of Python. And just, you know, people listening, if you get the chance, it'd be great for you to drop by the live stream we do on YouTube. Just go to talkpython.fm slash YouTube. YouTube can be part of it. It's always fun to get input from everyone out there. All right. Give us some examples of the types of things that you were able to do with Python and automating Revit. There's a talk, I'll go ahead and link to the talk that you gave at a meetup in mm -hmm. San Francisco at Pinesula. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you talked about, there's a lot of nice graphics and you talked a lot about what you've done at various projects and stuff. Give us yeah. some concrete examples. Like it's all great in practice to say you could automate stuff, but like, what did you actually do? Yeah. So there was a lot of those kind of very boring automating, moving tags type of thing. Some of the other bigger projects I, I worked on, at the time I was working at uh, WeWork. This is the fast growth time of WeWork as well, right? Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. So when I joined WeWork, it was a relatively small team. I think the built-in information, you know, modeling team, which is the team that I had joined, had just a handful, like four, five people. And I think the company as a whole was maybe 800. And when I left four years later, they were at around... 10,000 employees. Oh my gosh. And then the building department or the design, building and design department initially was, was opening one or two buildings a month. And by the time I left, they were opening like 25 or 30. So all other kind of, we were drama side of what happened within the company, within the kind of design and architecture department, it was just, it was really interesting to see Yeah, because traditionally companies building buildings, they're doing that as a service. So they're an architecture office that you hire. And yeah. WeWork was one of those examples where you had this kind of vertical integration. They were the owners, they were the operators, they were the designers, they were the builders, they even bought, they acquired a, con a general contractor. So you had this huge opportunity to optimize and to integrate. So some of the things that we did, like one of the projects I worked there was related to integrating data from the earlier design process into everything that would happen kind of downstream. So for example, as designers were working on buildings and trying to get them through the approval process, as soon as this project was sort of starting to materialize, we wanted to get those spaces fed into the kind of sales pipeline. So yeah. we would actually build Revit integrations that would extract data from these models and feed them to other parts of the company. So one of them was related to- Oh, interesting. Yeah, to figuring out how many offices are going to be in this building, how big are they? Uh, how many desks are in each one and essentially integrate that, for example, with Salesforce so that the sales team could start selling them. But we did things with supply chain as well. So we had logistics company that would be trying to orchestrate a shipment of, for example, these chairs and couches that you see in the photo, they would need to be placed at warehouses and then delivered to buildings before opening. And 
they turned these buildings around really quickly. So it was really important that they had kind of insight. So as people were designing these buildings, we could actually start quantifying what was being used, what was going to be assigned, and then get the data sort of out of the model, which is not very, it's essentially a file that sits there. And we would use Python, for example, to quantify these things, pull the data out, and then you know, send them on to other platforms. So, so a little bit of kind of data wrangling. Yeah. It's like JIT interior design just yeah. in time, right? Like exactly. we're going to need this here by Tuesday. So we're, we're going to automate it. So one of the things you have to do is you have to figure out how, you know, maybe describe for, I'm sure not everyone's been inside of a WeWork before. Give us a quick sense of like, what does the inside of a WeWork look like? Or any, a lot of these co-working spaces, but WeWork is, you know, probably one of the bigger ones. Yeah. So, so WeWork, it would take empty floor spaces and, they would use sort of storefronts, kind of glass storefronts and subdivide them into small offices, as small as a single desk or kind of cubicle. At, I think they could be as big as 15 or 20 person office. And they were really efficient in how they kind of pack these desks. And they would do it in a way that it was very efficient for them. They would pack these offices really close, but then they would create these really nice, beautiful shared common spaces. So yeah. when you would walk into we work, you would often see these very kind of slick, hip spaces, well-designed music playing. So it was this, this kind of nice experience, this cool kitchen, coffee area. And I, did, I think they were really good at it. I got to work out of WeWorks for many years and it was a really nice change for my previous kind of office environments. And even as a product, I actually really enjoyed what they were building. Nice. Yeah. So one of the things you spoke about is setting up some automation to figure out, well, how should we lay out these tables either this open space, like just hangout area tables or like the, the co-working desks or there's some parts that have like glass, clear glass separators. So you have some, some sort of quiet, but it's still, they've all got to be laid out, right? And you can say, okay, if, if we adjust the walls like this or do that, then here's, here's the arrangement, right? Yeah. A couple of my coworkers were trying to figure out how to automate this so that as architects are taking this kind of big floor plate and they're slicing it, they're generally trying to figure out how the circulation is going to work. And then you build these kind of long blocks and then you're going to start subdividing them to offices. And then as you start subdividing them, then you got to figure out how the desks are going to work. And then you have columns. So actually like laying them out and, and getting kind of an efficient algorithm can be kind of time consuming. So some folks from kind of the data and research team, they were writing algorithms. And the first one that I saw was actually written in Python. And I think it was served like using a Flask API. But the idea is that you could pass it a polygon and you would apply these rules about how you can lay out desks within this kind of polygon. And you would say, the door is here, do your best to lay out desks. And you would, you would try to do that. It was fairly straightforward math. It wasn't artificial intelligence or some sort of machine learning. It was actually pretty straightforward kind of brute force if I start laying these out along the edges. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they were really interesting. They did some really interesting research on that. Yeah, it's cool. A lot of nice examples of what you can do with a little bit of Python, a little bit of automation, even if you've got to somehow mash that together with a, a .NET or, you know, I guess if it was a Java API, you could use Jython or, or some other thing like that, right? Yeah. And this one specifically, the way we got around it is by actually building it as an API and have a C-sharp add-in called the API to do the calculation. So that way we didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's perfect. This portion of Talk Python to Me is sponsored by Linode. Cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. 
Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of TalkPython. You can find all the details over at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Choose the data center that's nearest to you. You also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. Imagine that, real human support for everyone. You can choose shared or dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes clusters, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit talkpython.fm and click the Create Free Account button to get started. You can also find the link right in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to Linode for supporting TalkPython. Let's talk about this other thing that you've been working on AEC.Works, which is Architectural Engineering and Construction Works. And tell us a bit about this project. This is a website you built for like raising the visibility of cool companies in the space. Yeah, yeah. This actually started as when I was a, an engineer at WeWork, and I was kind of seeing a lot of really interesting companies kind of start to show up and try to build either software products or kind of try to take a, a technology and, and build a new kind of companies within AC that were, you know, trying to use technology in, in some interesting way. And I started keeping a, a list of it, a Google Sheet or Airtable form or something. And I, this list started growing. So it started with four and five, and eventually I had 20 or 30 of them. And I would often share them in, you know, different kind of community forums. And then I thought it would be interesting if I could somehow make that available and maybe even so that people could contribute and edit them. So basically build this out. It's a, you know, it's, Django, kind of traditional, somewhat traditional Django app, except that on the front end, instead of using, you know, templates, I just use uh, Vue.js. So it's a front end, back end separation type project. And uh, yeah, the idea is that you can create these entries that represent these different companies or products. And then it just, you know, it's kind of displays them. So it's pretty simple, nothing really crazy. Nice. Yeah. I will highlight a couple just to give people a sense, but there's a way to come here and say, suggest a company that's doing like innovative work here, right? So if people are out there like, why is my company out here? Well, there's a button, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So I just briefly, let's talk about two of them that uh, are maybe noteworthy. Uh, this one right at the top of the moment that says, it's called Speckle. And let's see, it says, engineers, designers, and hackers in the entire organization rely on us for interoperability and automation. So it's like source control, collaboration, versioning, notification for architectural construction folks. Yeah. It's a little bit like AC, architecture, engineering, construction, data wrangling on steroids, right? So mm -hmm. when you're in, and if you're working with software, you can pretty much always just like make a JSON and pass it around, right? And you can, as long as you can get, you know, at least some basic data types. Now, if you have to pass around a wall, it's much more difficult <laughs> than just passing around a string. And yeah. what type of wall is it? Where is it located? How big it is? It's complicated. So. You have all these different desktop applications, and I've highlighted some that are used primarily within architecture, right? like Revit, for example. But there's all these other applications for other disciplines within the, the construction, you know, engineering industry. So, right. Some of the ones they highlight are like Unity, Civil 3D, eTabs, Blender, Unreal, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. Revit. Yeah. So yeah, the first time, first time Speckle came around, I believe it was like an academic project. Came out of um, 
Europe. And what they would do is they would build, like, for example, you know, an add-in for one of these platforms, and they would output some sort of serialization of these objects. And then they would build an add-in for another of these you know, desktop apps that could read that JSON object and deserialize it back into this architectural or you know, engineer whatever, structural beam or something. So it was about building all these connectors that would plug into these environments that weren't very easy to interrupt data in right, and out. Right. And on top of it, we would have a web platform. I think they call it like streams or something. And that way you could take data from one thing and plug it into another, kind of see them all online together and share them, for example. So there's some, you know, really interesting ideas about collaborating tracking them and that's only possible because you take them out of these desktop apps because a lot of them are not really built for this type of collaboration or this type of data sharing yeah that's a really interesting idea like these things do not support any sort of interoperability but if we can just get stuff in and out of any one of them we could be that middle ground right yeah Yeah, so i don't know a ton about this i really basically just skim the website and watch their explainer video but it seems like some pretty cool open source stuff for people in this space, so they could you know check that out, right? Yeah, and what I think what's exciting about them is that they're actually open source too. So yeah. a lot of software in AC is they're big companies and they're paid, and there's not a lot of example of uh, successful open source product companies. Essentially, they're they've actually been able to become a you know real company with employees and raise money, and they're open source. So it's really interesting to see them trying to build a you know successful open source model within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Prod Vaughn out in the live stream says uh, two uh, double high fives for uh, Django <laughs> for, for your app at AEC.works. All right, so that's Speckle, which is cool. And then also Ladybug, Ladybug tools. Yeah, Ladybug is incredible too. Ladybug's been around for a while. I don't know how long, but it was actually one of my first experiences, expo- one of the first times I got exposed to open source within AC industry as well. But it's essentially, it started, it was a bunch of Python tools that would help you do kind of environmental analysis and they would basically use like weather data and some existing products. I forgot that it's been a while since I used this, but they would essentially wrap around these heavier duty programs that could actually do like daylight simulation or mm-hmm. like solar analysis, but they would, they would build an interface in Python that you could use within, so Revit wasn't too much later, but Rhino and some of these other AC applications. and. The outcome of it was that you would basically would, it would allow any kind of architect, you know, students to essentially take any type of building that they were designing and actually run and see what does this building look like throughout the year? What does sun uh-huh. hit or what does light look like inside and actually render these analytical kind of drawings from it? So it was really interesting. It made all of that kind of accessible to a lot of people that wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And I yeah. think it was entirely written in Python for a long time. Yeah. There's a cross-platform ladybug tools. It's written in Python, which can be run almost anywhere and plugged into any geometry engine, which is great. And then it talks about having some visual aspects of harnessing the capabilities of CAD to produce a variety of interactive 3D graphics, which producing cool interactive graphics in Python is always fun. But yeah, this one's also free and open source. Yep, that's right. I think they've received some uh, grants from the Department of Energy or something like that. They, they're, they've okay. been pretty well supported. Yeah. And it's 99.8% Python. That's still a lot of Python. The, and and uh, 0.2% other. It's probably Markdown. It's probably, yeah. I'm guessing it's the uh, the one shell <laughs> script and the uh, requirements.txt here. So. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. All right. So all that stuff is super neat. The work that you're doing here to shine a light on the different ways we can automate stuff. You know, we've in architecture, we've got Revit and then the, the PyRevit 
and the Python Revit wrapper, and then what, Rev, Revtron, you said. And then also these open source like connectors and interoperability platforms are all super neat. I do want to talk to you about one other thing that doesn't have a super clear connection, but is also, it sounds like it came out of your time at WeWork, this the stuff you did with Airtable. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. So Airtable is something that I've seen. I've, I've had people tell me that, oh, you definitely have to work with Airtable. It's, it's amazing. It's like Sheets or Excel, but way nicer or things like that. Tell us, you know, tell people out there, Airtable is this commercial product, right? Tell us about this and then we'll get to some Python side of things in a moment. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Airtable. I'm pretty much since the first time I sort of run into it, I've been a user and I use it for everything, personal projects, work, but I define it as this kind of Google Sheets meet relational database. And I, I think there are other products like it, but I find their table just really kind of a joy to use. Yeah. I also feel like there's a Trello Kanban board aspect of it as well, right? Yeah. They've been adding, you know, quite a few kind of like views and tooling on top of the underlying data. So there's some interesting things you can do. It's not as, as sort of pure of a kind of tracker as Trello is, but you can basically build a Trello-like interface and there's a Kanban mode. So you can, whatever your, your roles are, if you have certain fields. So for example, you could maybe have a, a table with like apartments you're listing, for example, and maybe you have a column that is a status, whether you've visited them or not. And in Google Sheet, you would maybe type it or do like a data validation. In their table, you can actually see this is a field that links to this other table and right. here are the options that I want. And you can kind of create truly kind of relational data and have nice. these views be linked to each other and in some really interesting ways. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit like spreadsheet meets relational database that has relationships rather than just random stuff you type in Excel, right? Yeah, that's right. Cool. All right, so that's Airtable. The Python side of things is you created this thing called Pi Airtable, which is a Python client for the Airtable API, right? Tell people about this. The initial version of this was through my time at WeWork as well, but we had all these Airtables that would store, I think one of them was like a furniture database. So every row was a piece of furniture and you had all this detail about these objects, maybe some data, and now you want to use that in other places, or you wanted to feed additional data in that, in a table. So Airtable exposed an API, but the API, it's somewhat simple and minimal. But, you know, it works, it's effective. So this was originally called Airtable Python Wrapper and it was recently renamed to Pi Airtable, but it's a, just a kind of a lightweight Python client around. It just, it adds a lot of the kind of nuances about the, the, the API itself, some of the data types, and just kind of a high level interface. So then you can just kind of import it and you don't have to go spend too much time in the documentation figuring out what all the HTTP requests are and it just wraps mm -hmm. them up and handles a lot of the a lot of the things and adds some you know nice high level abstractions to make it really easy to use in this I've been working on this project for probably maybe three years now and mm -hmm. it was really interesting because in the beginning it was just me and I thought it was useful to have this and I just kind of put it out there and it was really fun to see like people coming into the repo and actually asking questions or opening bug tickets and in some cases like I've had people just do lots of contributions like this one this one person came out of nowhere one day and just like rewrote a test suite for it <laughs> I had these the initial test suite I, I guess I didn't know any better would actually make calls to the API and it was hard because the state wasn't predictable tests were a bit slow so 
I guess when I did that, I didn't know you should sort of mock your requests and run your tests that way instead. And they literally came and like rewrote all my dev suites. And so it was really fun. And it's been nice. kind of one of the longer running open source projects that I've had. And over time, I've just gotten better at kind of maintaining it and added features. And then more recently, I just kind of rebranded Aspire table, build new documentation. And it's been really fun to see the project grow and it's got a decent user base. So I often see people coming up and down. I search GitHub every once in a while and I see it used in a lot of different places. So it's really cool to see. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you said it has 200,000 downloads a month and it's listed as the official Python Airtable library, right? And the Airtable docs? Yeah. I assume those 200,000, a lot of them are CI. (laughs) I don't know how many are actual direct installs, but you know, it does get used. Yeah. And then the Airtable documentation. That's not nothing, right? Still, that's a lot. Right. Even if it's a quarter, yeah, that's yeah. still a ton of people using the library. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And then recently, I think it was about a month ago or so, they added to the official documentation as the community driven kind of Python client. And they didn't have any others listed before that. So yeah. I think that's bringing in more people. Nice. And so you said it also has some ORM capabilities. Yeah. So this was really fun. I would always use this library whatever I, I needed to work with their table, but I would oftentimes want to build classes for the models that I had. I was always, mm-hmm. I love using Django and these different types of ORMs. I think it's a really fun way of kind of working with persistence. And oh, I yeah. wanted to do something like that with Airtable. So I, in this recent release, I, I basically kind of tried to build my own little ORM. And the idea is that I, I would define, for example, if I had a near table that it was contact, name, first name, email or something, I could essentially you know, define a class called contact and then inherit from this Airtable base model and then define the fields. And then I could just instantiate a class and, and say, not save. And you would fire the request to basically save it. I could update an attribute and then just hit save and you would update it or call it delete method. So it was really fun. I, I don't know how much that's used. It's kind of a new feature, but I had tons of fun building it and I got into descriptors, which I had never used before. Yeah, descriptors are wild. Yeah, they were really crazy. So you had to define, these are the attributes this model should have, but when you actually instantiate, they behave very differently. You want to get the actual value, but not the, the kind of the field type. So descriptors were the natural answer, I think, to it, but it was really fun building it. Right. And you've got like text fields and email fields and even checkbox fields, which I don't typically recall from the Django ORM or... Yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. that's an Airtable, a kind of right, native right, right. type. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And even have links from one Airtable to another. Cool. Yeah. I didn't realize it had this ORM aspect to it. This is very neat. Yeah. So when you fetch a record from Airtable, if it's a link, you actually just get the ID. It doesn't actually mm-hmm. like transverse the link. So uh, if you define it as a, as a link field, it actually takes that ID and fetches the next one and then actually gives you the object instead of the ID. Yeah. Perfect like a foreign key type yeah, of uh, exactly. relationship thing. Awesome. All right. Anything else you want to throw out there about higher table before we wrap this thing up? No, that's it. Yeah. So if people are out there using Airtable and they want to treat it like an ORM, or they just want to talk to it. Yeah. Sounds like you should check this out. Yeah. I actually have a, a blog post I wrote when I, maybe about a year ago, that was called I'm using Airtable as a backend on Medium. And it was the initial version of AC.orgs, instead of having a Django backend, I actually tried to build it with just an Airtable serving it. And it was interesting. It's not, you won't have all the guarantees you have from a 
from a proper database, but it's a really easy way if you just want to put data somewhere and be able to fetch it. And you also get a free kind of UI that you can see the data and change it. So yeah, it's kind of like the admin backend of Django, but it's like this super rich thing in, in the form of Airtable, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very nice. I mean, maybe it's not a full acid transactional database, but at the same time, if that's where people are putting the data, you don't want to put it into Postgres and then try to keep the thing in sync or something like that doesn't sound fun either, right? So use the one place that holds the data if that's what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. You, you won't get, I mean, I think if you're doing this, you probably not, you won't be replacing Postgres, but it would maybe be replacing just like a local file or something. Yeah. But yeah, you do get, you get some form of like revision. It keeps track of every change. And so you get a lot for free. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. All right, well, we're about out of our time. So let me ask you the final two questions here. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? I think these days it's probably always VS Code, right? Or <laughs> big percentage of it. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely a big chunk. Yeah, I had a little, I, my first one was Notepad Plus. Then I think I used Adam, a Sublime for a while and then Adam mm -hmm. and then end up in VS Code. And these days I, I just, I love Python integrations that the team that there has built. So I couldn't really see myself moving away from it anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Very invested in it. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of action going around on with VS Code in general, and then also in the Python aspect of it, right? I do feel like this Sublime to Atom to almost everyone who is on that path, VS Code is the destination. Yep, I agree. Yeah. It just kept getting easier. Cool. All right. And notable PyPI package. I mean, you've already given us many different packages and things for people to check out, but something that, you know, you ran across, you're like, oh, this is cool. I really got to tell people about this one. Yeah. This is not a secret package. I think it's a pretty well known, but mm -hmm. I, I've just really come to enjoy using uh, Pydantic. Mm -hmm. It's one of those that I think I added on pretty much every project. I have, I think it's such a blast just to be able to define my classes and uh, set the types. I, I really enjoyed the way the project came together and it's sort of one of the standard ones that I added everywhere now. Yeah. If you have to parse data into your model or turn your model into something like JSON, it really helps a lot, especially if yeah. you have a hierarchical model, right? I've got this thing that contains a list of other Pydantic models, and then you've got to do type conversions to date times or to numbers or stuff like that. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. And you know, even on projects you're collaborating with other people, you have a sort of my pie first kind of approach, right? Where from the very beginning, your, your objects are kind of typed and that just makes it a lot easier to collaborate with other people that will jump into your project. And it's very clear what that object is and all the types. Yeah. So that kind of helps make sure that you, you stick with it. Absolutely. Good recommendation. I suspect people probably have heard of it as well, but it's, yeah. it's definitely a good one. Yeah, I've had Samuel on the show uh, to talk about it. All right. Final call to action. People, especially those out in architecture, engineering, construction, are excited about Python and some of the tools. What do you tell them? I think it's a it's an exciting time for the construction industry. It's kind of really good place to innovate. There's a lot of exciting technology products and companies being built. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to do something in kind of a different space. And I think they can really benefit from experience. People that have been, you know, doing more traditional software development to help them scale and build things. So yeah, it's interesting to see how that those kind of streams crossing to see architects go to build software and also seeing engineers coming to help make the architecture and construction industry better. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been great to have you on the show and I'd love to get these views into the different 
areas and communities where Python is making a difference. So thanks for sharing it in the architecture space. Nice, no, my pleasure. Yeah, you bet. See you later. Thanks, Will. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Choose Shortcut, formerly Clubhouse.io, for tracking all of your project's work because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Visit talkpython.fm slash shortcut. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode and click the create free account button to get started. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Mm-hmm.